Well, good morning. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Steve Stein. I'm uh, here with uh, Dr. John Eckstein. Uh, I am the author of The Oath, and we're here to discuss issues concerning the uh, themes that are brought upon by the book The Oath. And I'd like to introduce you to John Eckstein, a, a physician whom I practiced uh, all maybe one block away in Phoenix for about 30 years. Uh, John, why don't you... Thank you, Steve. Uh, uh, thank you, Steve. Yes, uh, as Steve mentioned, my name is John Eckstein, and um, I uh, first uh, met Steve uh, when we were both interns uh, in San Francisco. I went to medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, and did my internship in medicine at uh, San Francisco General Hospital. And I believe Steve was an orthopedic uh, resident at UCSF, and uh, he had rotations uh, at San Francisco General Hospital, and I remember uh, meeting Steve there. And then we next met uh, when we both returned uh, to Phoenix to uh, set up our medical practices. I joined my father, uh, who we will talk about later, uh, in practice in an internal medicine group, and Steve came, I believe, in 1974 uh, to right. set up his uh, orthopedic practice. And so uh, Steve and I had shared many patients. Uh, Steve was an excellent uh, orthopedic surgeon, and uh, I uh, always enjoyed uh, my association uh, with him uh, here in Phoenix. Well, you know, back in those days in San Francisco, those were crazy times back there. You know, with, uh, UC Medical Center was right above the Haight-Ashbury District. And the That's kind correct. of patients we saw, kind of patients we saw at the, uh, at the San Francisco General Hospital was really crazy for the time. Well, I had some interesting, interesting patients, and it was a good time to go into medicine, John. It certainly was an interesting time. Uh, Yes, we lived right next to the Haight-Ashbury District uh, in medical school and then uh, stayed there while I did my internship at San Francisco General Hospital. And I remember uh, in the emergency room uh, when I had my rotation uh, there, uh, you never knew what would uh, come in on a cart. and <laughs> But it was uh, largely uh, or frequently uh, drug-related or alcohol-related or Anything else you can imagine related? I can't think of a more interesting place in the world to do uh, uh, to work in the emergency room in San Francisco. So anyway, times have changed, and we're here to talk about we'll talk about things uh, that are brought up or related to issues that were discussed in the book, The Oath. Uh, and John has been kind enough to talk to me, and he has. He has a, a, a kind of uh, reference in life that most of us don't have in regards to uh, the history of his family. And I think, John, I mean, maybe this would be the time to talk about that. Huh? Well, thank you, Steve. I'd be happy to do that. But first I want to just tell you, Steve, and I haven't had really had a chance uh, to do this in any depth, um, I just want to tell you what an amazing uh, book you wrote uh, it uh, I mean for someone uh, trained in medicine uh, we're, we're known for very precise language uh, but we try to express it in very concise word concise sentences and use a lot of medical jargon so no one else can understand this uh, but, Steve, right. uh, but Steve in his book uh, for his first book uh, is a jewel uh, to the way he developed his characters, the way uh, he goes back and forth uh, chronologically to weave this uh, incredible story. And he doesn't hold back on any of the horror and terror that we will probably talk about, uh, but if anyone wants to get a uh, first-hand uh, 
look, and I know there have been a lot of books written about the Holocaust and what it was like in the camps, uh, they could do no better than uh, than Steve's book. It's a, it's an incredible achievement, and I just want to congratulate you, Steve, on this. And I'm not saying this because I'm a friend of yours. I'm saying it because it is really great literature. Well, thank you very much. I, I really do appreciate that. Oh, my God, making my morning. So anyway, <laughs> talk, we, we talked earlier, and I think you have some interesting history of your family that I, 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 the people out there might, might want to uh, know about. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I, my family uh, has an interesting story, and in a very perverse and uh, in horrible way, uh, I wouldn't be talking to you today if it weren't for anti-Semitism in the world. And Steve, of course, uh, graphically described anti-Semitism at its very worst throughout history uh, in terms of the magnitude of it. But uh, again, in a in a in a very perverse way. Uh, were there not anti-Semitism, we wouldn't be having this discussion, at least from my standpoint. And let me tell you why. My father and my mother were both born in 1908 uh, in Europe. My father was born in Hungary, in the Transyl Transylvania section of Hungary. My mother was born in Frankfurt. After World War I, uh, that portion of Hungary became Romania. And uh, my grandfather and his family, of which my father was the eldest of seven children, uh, to put it bluntly, the Hungarians, uh, which my grandfather was a proud Hungarian, uh, they never liked the Romanians. The Romanians never liked the Hungarians, and everyone hated the Jews. So it didn't take long for my grandfather to say, I'm out of this place. I need, we need to go somewhere. And in 1922, uh, he left for the United States. He had a relative that lived in Pittsburgh, uh, and he came to Pittsburgh and earned enough money over three years to bring my grandmother, uh, his wife, and, and my father and his six siblings uh, to the United States. My father was 17 then. He finished uh, his last year of high school. He didn't speak any English, but he learned English, finished the year of high school, and then he actually got in as a uh, student to the University of Pittsburgh. And he was a very good student uh, in science and other classes, and he uh, wanted to become a doctor. And the only uh, 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 the only school that he could afford to go to and still work and, and provide money for the family was the University of Pittsburgh. Well, as many people know, in those days in professional schools and law schools and medical schools, there were Jewish quotas. So they only allowed a few number of Jewish students into the schools. And the same way with the faculties, they had a uh, few Jewish uh, faculty members in law and medical schools. So my father was rejected, even though he was qualified uh, to go to the University of Pittsburgh. And then he said, well, I want to become a doctor, and I know I can't get in anywhere in the United States because of these Jewish quotas, so I'm going to apply to the University of Frankfurt, the Goethe Medical School uh, in Frankfurt, Germany. And in 1931, he entered the class uh, there. And as everyone knows, in uh, January of 1933, during his second year, Hitler assumed power. He uh, he didn't tell me a lot about those days, but he told me that they were in anatomy class. And when they heard it over the radio, that was or the the message came in that Hitler had assumed power. Uh, all of his classmates started cheering. Uh, wow! And uh, and so my father, uh, as you know, uh, the Nuremberg laws uh, took effect within a couple of years, um, and my father being an American citizen, the Nuremberg Laws uh, basically said that any 
a person of Jewish uh, origin uh, would be kicked out of all the universities and all the faculty members would be kicked out of the universities. And we know that there were many, yeah. you know, the people who became Nobel Prize winners who were kicked out of uh, Germany, German medical schools and actually came to the United States. Well, my father, being an American citizen and because the United States still had relations with Germany, he was not kicked out. He couldn't be kicked out. And so he completed his medical school uh, there. Uh, the other side of this story is that he, during his uh, second or third year, he met my mother, who was a young woman in Germany at a swimming pool, and they courted, and they were married in 1935. My mother had a brother, a younger brother by a year, who uh, was all, his name was Otto, Otto Bentheim, and he joined, um, he was in the medical school, not in the, the class behind my father, and because of the Nuremberg laws, he was kicked out of that medical school because he was a German Jew. And he then had to decide what he wanted to do. He knew a friend at the university, a family friend who had gone to the University of Michigan. He contacted him, who was a faculty member at the University of Michigan. He contacted him, and by hook, by hook and crook, he got in and to the medical school with the help of this friend and he graduated from from the University of Michigan Medical School so you can see the irony of this my father an american citizen and a jew yes. had to go to nazi germany what became nazi germany to get his medical education and because he was an american citizen was not kicked out my Uncle Otto, who was a German Jew, was kicked out, had to come to the United States, and graduated from an American uh, medical school. Now, you, so, you were telling me earlier, you, you were telling me earlier about some famous people that had been at the university when your father was there in Frankfurt. Absolutely, and, and I, I really, uh, reading Steve's book, uh, reading your book, Steve, uh, got me interested in uh, Joseph Mengele, you know, the angel of death that we all hear about. Uh, and I had never, you know, I had read some, some things about him in the, in, uh, in the horrible, uh, unspeakable experiments he did uh, on people and directed. But I didn't really know his history of, of, of where he had been. And I found out that he graduated he got his medical degree in 19, either 1937 or 1938, I couldn't tell exactly, from that same university where my father was. So there was some overlap. My father was probably a little bit ahead of him, but I think they were in the medical school at the same time. My father never mentioned it. I don't know how large the class was. Uh, and so I don't know if they ever crossed paths or, or anything of that sort, uh, but, uh, another connection with my family and Steve's, uh, and Steve, your book, uh, with Mangala, your, my, my, your, my uh, father's, my father's, uh, favorite professor at the university of Frankfurt was, uh, a professor, uh, Beta, B-E-T-H-E, and my mother had gone to school with uh, and was a classmate of uh, Professor Beta's son, who you may know as Hans Beta, who came, who was, uh, you know, partly Jewish. He was kicked out. They were both kicked out of the university. Hans Beta came to the United States, was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, was part of the Manhattan Project, and I think wow. if they lift the top uh, 10 physicists of all time uh, in terms of their contribution, Hans Beta would be one of those. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, and your uncle, uh, Otto, he became a psychiatrist and he was in practice in Phoenix. That's and right. And that's how we got to, yeah. exactly. That's how we got to Phoenix. My uncle Otto, after finishing at Michigan, went to Massachusetts general hospital, got his psychiatry residency, 
uh, had a psychiatry residency, and his first job was to become the medical director at what the, what we called at that time the insane asylum here in Phoenix. And Phoenix was, of course, a town of around, I don't know, 60,000 then. So he moved here. Getting back to Germany, my parent, my mother and my father and her parents were able to get out in 1936. That was before all you know the restrictions really took place. They couldn't leave right. with much, but they were able to get out. And they came to New York where my father completed his medical residency. And then uh, when my uncle moved to Phoenix to assume this position, he moved his parents with him to Phoenix and my father joined the army and went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, where I was born. My brother and I were born. And my father was chief of medicine at the Martin Army Hospital there. And Otto served at the uh, hospital in Phoenix for a couple of years. And then he joined the army as a psychiatrist. And uh, my father was at Fort Benning until 1944, when he heard, when he received orders that he would be deployed overseas, he didn't know where he would go. He needed a place to put uh, his wife, my mother, and two young boys uh, while he was going overseas. So what better place than Phoenix? So we drove across the country. We moved in with my grandparents. My father got on a train the next day and went to New York. And this was uh, in early June, 1944. Uh, on June 7th, he got his orders right the day after D-Day, and he was sent to southern England to be chief of medicine at a, at a hospital that took care of uh, D-Day casualties, and he did that for wow. a good 12 to uh, 18 months. And he came back to Phoenix, wow. and uh, uh, and I'm just going to do one other thing, Steve. I know I've gone on much too long, but I want to talk to you about my Uncle Otto because he became a psychiatrist and he followed the D-Day troops uh, through uh, Normandy. He was about two weeks behind and he was, a, he was the psychiatrist who took care of, you know, the, the mental illness of those soldiers and the post-traumatic stress and it wasn't named, you know, called that at the time. But he followed them all across Europe until... Uh, the war ended in May of 1945. Uh, he uh, was an inveterate writer, uh, an author, and wrote beautiful letters back home. And there was a letter that he wrote on April 13, 1945. And I'm just going to read a portion of this because I think it's it so well describes what's, what you, Steve, portrayed in your book and how, uh, how, how devastating the damage was to Europe. He had been, he had not been back to his town of Frankfurt for 13 years. And he wrote this, uh, letter, dear folks, it was homecoming day for me, but never have the, never have the words. You can't come home again meant more. The trip in an open car was beautiful beyond description. The Rhineland is now an ocean of blooming fruit trees. I came through your native town, Moody, that's the word for mother, but I did not see your native home. At least I didn't know it. And then to the town where the two rivers meet, a picture of utter desolation, a fitting preparation of what was to come. What was to come. It cuts your heart and it makes you feel sick inside. You can't believe it. You stand at the Ross Market and you see all the way down to the Dom because there is nothing, nothing in between. You can't walk on the sidewalk because it is messed up with stone, debris, furniture, glassware. The, bear, the born synagogue is apparently not damaged by bombing, but burned by the Nazis. The old Jewish cemetery behind it contains not a single stone. Uh, the magnolias bloom in front of Gorder's house, but there is no house. You can't come home again. It is not only because all this is so dear to my heart that everybody even those who never saw it before agrees Frankfurt is the worst site of the war. 
it is so gruesome and horrifying that I wish I had not seen it. I wish, <clears throat> I wish I could remember it as it was. And then he concluded the letter with these words, President Roosevelt, I get a little emotional uh, reading this, but President Roosevelt died yesterday and I'm too sad to talk about it. A new world, a new world is being born. Let's pray it won't be a new monstrosity. So that wow. was his letter home. And anyway, I've rambled on much no. too long. And you know the the devastation that was brought to Germany because they would not surrender. The devastation that had to uh, had to occur to try to force them to surrender with Hitler hiding under his bunker while his cities were being carpet bombed, you know, it it hurts you. It hurts you to think about all the people that were killed during that war. And, of course, you know, being being a Jew and with family members probably killed through the Holocaust, you you don't think about that as much as you think about what happened in the Holocaust. But in Germany, the cities were just totally destroyed. And all because of one maniac. Uh, I mean, really, literally, uh, one maniac, one absolutely horrific, uh, I hesitate to even call him a human being, uh, with his initial followers, who everyone said this will pass over, uh, uh, and then it became what it became. And you so well described, Steve, in your book, how even at the end, they were hang- he was hanging his own SS guards, you know, these horrible people, because they, they questioned what he might be doing or questioned whether they should be doing this toward the end of the war. And to show the rest of the people that they better not question anything he says, they would hang these people by lampposts in the city. So the rest of the population would see this and see what might happen to them. And you so well described that in your book. You know, it's too bad. There were several attempts to kill Hitler. And one, the best attempt was at a meeting in a conference. And uh, Hitler was protected because the bomb was put under this heavy table, and when it exploded, the, the table blocked it and prevented him from being killed while others were significantly killed. But somebody came in with a briefcase, and, and they tried then, and I think they tried a couple of other times, but was never successful. Horrible time. Yes, and, he, and, he, time. And, each, yeah, and each time he... He he, uh, he made a lot of people pay for it, even in his inner circle. He just took them out to immediately and hung them or shot them. And I believe Kristallnacht is the same thing. Well, as I recall, there was someone uh, killed uh, uh, in the streets of, uh, of I can't uh, Munich or some some one of the cities, and they blamed it on a Jew. Jewish merchant, and then as a result of that, uh, uh, you know, they just did these horrible, that that horrible night, which really is when kind of the whole terror uh, began. Well, it's, uh, it, was, it was a miserable time for a lot of the world. And, uh, you know, um, getting back to uh, the book, uh, Several themes were discussed in the book, and the name of the book is The Oath, and that refers to the Hippocratic Oath, and uh, was put by Hippocrates many hundreds of years ago. And I was trying to think about what was happening in, in Greece at the time Hippocrates felt he had to write the Hippocratic Oath. Because, yeah. you know, because you know, uh, in the oath, there's some specific things he says. You know, he says that... Uh, you should not operate or cut for stone. You should not perform abortions. And you should do nothing to enable to kill people medically. And there must have been some rampant stuff going on in Greece at that time for somebody to stop and write these things. Um, interesting thoughts. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, I, I I agree, and and of course some of the things I mean some of the things that we've that we still uh, glean today from it uh, are still uh, applicable today. Uh, some are some may not be uh, as we've modernized and changed, uh, but uh, obviously I will not cut for the stone. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if that actually uh, you you tell me, Steve. Does that refer to the kidney stone or the bladder stone? I think or? A, I think, I think they had bladder stones. And yes. They probably identified it by whatever symptoms they had, and people were being cut upon and probably not doing well. It was an unnecessary operative procedure. And right. But I think that applies to any of the unnecessary operative procedures that may be going on today. You know, we see that from time to time. People, surgeons who are pretty enthusiastic about something that really they shouldn't be enthusiastic about. And uh, so, and then there are, uh, you cannot get a physician to work at a prison to inject uh, death medication. You cannot right. kill people. And, and, and that and that carries on till today, but it's it's an interesting thing. I I I hadn't done much research on Hippocrates, but I'm sure if I look back, there were some crazy things going on at the time. Yes, and um, you know, and the whole uh, I I think it was you know, they shouldn't give any medicine to a pregnant woman to destroy the child. Well, of course. Uh, whatever one's views are on abortion, I know it's uh, controversial, uh, and I respect both sides of it. Uh, but I, uh, but of course, we do that now, and there are medicines that can uh, terminate, uh, uh, you know, the very, very earliest pregnancy. The the pill uh, uh, one day later, uh, and so the, you know, there are some things that are accepted. But I think the the principal message of do no harm uh, was uh, is something that we all uh, need to uh, need to apply in medicine today, and and as you indicated, sometimes is not. Yeah, what is it? The words are primum non notere. I think I don't know if those words are directly in the oath, but it's been described as that. Um, and, you know, the, I remember in our I remember at UCSF uh, medical school the Hippocratic oath was read to us on the first day and I don't know if that still is done uh, but it was uh, you know it was it was something that gripped us uh, uh, as we uh, began our uh, our medical student lives you know as we had actually talked earlier when you're in medical school you are you are, uh, it's almost, it's almost, I, I don't say a priesthood, but you are, you are convinced of the importance of what you do. And it, it becomes more important than many other things in your life. And at that time, when you're young and you're in medical school and you believe and to do well for others and do the best you possibly can to keep people well and do no harm, that gets drilled into us over time. Um, you know, and that is one of the aspects that was discussed when we talk about the experiments that the Nazis did, where they did humans and they, human experiments without permission, and people died and were killed, and many of these experiments were sloppily done at places like Auschwitz and Dachau. And, and uh, how do those physicians who did those things, how do they live with themselves? How can they say, I'm doing right? Because they know, they know them, they're doing wrong. Um, Mangala is, you know, the one who's famous. They call him the uh, angel of death. And he would, he did experiments such as trying to change the eye color of people's irises. He would experiment on twins. He would he would kill the he would kill his children in the experiments by injecting phenol into their heart. You know how can you do that? You know. But for, you yes, that? and I think I think as you indicated first, I think first 
they would remove the eyes or enucleate the eyes, or maybe it was after the phenol, but they would kill these children to get the eyes and then give it to a pathologist to do the tissue uh, studies to see how that would, uh, you know, how that might relate to the color of the iris and the color of the eyes, if as if that was, you know, real important research uh but of course yeah. they you Maybe know their whole idea fine. their whole idea of eugenics and not only in germany but even in other countries and even in the united states the whole concept of genetics and eugenics was based on racial superiority so you know everyone uh, the germans weren't the only ones who who uh, oh, were doing horrible things the sterilization of the mentally retarded that was going on here as well as in Germany. Um, and the Tuskegee uh, experimentations, yeah. So we all have, uh, we all have uh, some uh, blame to uh, atone for, but, uh, but the Germans certainly topped the list in, uh, in the horror of what they did. Uh, it was a... Um, one of one of the books that helped inspire me to write my book was a book. It was translated from the Hungarian by a guy named Miklos Nishli, and he was a pathologist, relatively famous forensic pathologist that had been sent to Auschwitz along with, well, I think 500,000 Hungarians in 1944. And Mengele recognized him and said, "How would you like to work?" in my laboratory and do some autopsies and help in my experiments. And so he did. He ultimately saved the lives of his family. And in the descriptions in his book, when you read it, and either it was because of the translation or, or himself, there was no heart. You couldn't have any feeling about what he was feeling. You couldn't sense that. Because he, he was living well. He was actually dressed in regular clothes. He didn't lose any weight. He had his own place to sleep that was next to the crematorium. And, and so I read his book, and I didn't feel any sense of what he should have felt, you know, being amongst right. his horror of other things. And so I, uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he, he helped me. And one of my characters, I think Michelle Katz in the book, sort of meets up with uh, uh um, this guy, this physician, yeah. and works alongside him. And in his book, in, in Mishley's book, he talks about other physicians working with him. So how how do you feel well, you are? Yeah. yeah. How should you feel if you're in a camp and you're working on experiments and you think perhaps maybe I'll save the life of my family if I help these Nazis in their worthless experiments? In which some people get killed, or eyes taken out, or they're infected with TB or typhus. Is that okay? You know. Yeah. Well, what would, what would we Steve, you just—I mean—you captured that so well uh, in your book uh, because as I was reading it, I so connected with uh, Michelle Katz. Uh, uh, you didn't make him an internist; uh, you made him a surgeon. <laughs> I think because. You were uh, such a good surgeon, but but I think in part you did because uh, surgeons really help people in a in a very decisive way. Internists help people as well, but it takes a lot longer to do it. In other words, if I treat a diabetic and prevent complications, it's not like what you did, Steve. If someone had a broken hip, you would put in a new hip or repair the fracture and, and the patient would walk out of the hospital without pain and start doing things they never did. They couldn't do for a long time. Uh, what I do is much less glamorous. And, um, so it, it was, uh, I can certainly understand why you chose, uh, Michelle Katz uh, to be a surgeon, but it didn't make any difference from my standpoint because it was really the ethical issues and the ethical conflicts that he had to deal with from the very beginning of what he would do. And he would always 
try. He was always conflicted with. She always asked himself, should I do this? And he always felt for the people that weren't getting the privileges that he got. And all, whether it be from his escape from Lyon and, and then when he went down to, I believe, Nice, and, and then when he went to the first camp, and then when he went to Theresienstadt, and, and then he had to make the decision, should I go to Auschwitz alone and, and with the guarantee, supposed guarantee, the promises that my family would be okay, should I go there, not knowing what will happen to me, but maybe because I'm a doctor, they will, they will grant me certain privileges. And as soon as he got there, that's exactly what he did. He kind of put himself forward as a doctor and offered his credentials. And they saw that he was a talented guy and they of course moved him into the lab. And then he started doing all these autopsies and collecting tissue samples and everything. But all the time he questioned what he was doing, whether this was correct. But then he said, but if I don't do this, my family will die like everyone else is dying. So it was this eternal, you know, ever-present conflict that he had to he had to deal with, and he was wrestling with, you know, the rest of his life. Yeah. Remember, remember in the book Michelle Katz, which I think we all put a little bit of our own self in this book. So Michelle is a bit of me, but he he is worried about what he is doing, and he talks to the rabbi, Rabbi Rosenberg. Right. And the rabbi, the rabbi says, look. Sometimes we have to do things that we don't want to do. Look at me. I had right. to lie to that Sonner, Sonner Commando that, they, that they're not going to kill him when everything is done so he doesn't act crazy and affect the other people. And I had to lie. And sometimes we do things we don't really want to do, but we have to do them. So, anyway, That's right. That, and that and was, I, uh, I'm sure as you wrote it, much more than anyone as you write this and the research that you did and but as you're as you're writing it i'm just reading it and i every day i uh, when i when i th- think of michelle katz as i was reading about him i was always asking myself what would i do what yeah. decisions would i have made would i be strong enough to say I can't do this anymore, but knowing what the consequences of that would be, not knowing really what was happening to my family, but if I said that, they would tell me, well, that's it. You're going to die and your family's going to die. And so how, you know, what kind of decision, uh, what kind of place are you in that you can even make any decision, any rational decision other than I have to do this for my life and my, and more importantly, my family's life. And I would venture to say I, that I probably would be making those same decisions coming to the yeah, same place he came to. You know, uh, and at the time, the horrors that you see in the camps are such that you you don't want to have that happen to you. And and one of the other things that occurred and occurred to Michelle Katz was the survivor's guilt. And we talked to Holocaust survivors, and many have written and many go around the country talking. There's a person in Indiana, Eva Kaur, who's up in Terre Haute, and she's in her 90s, but she's still speaking. But they, they go around and they and they talk about these things, and you wonder, how would I have reacted? How could I have lived? And you know, for maybe 20 years after the Holocaust, after the war, very little was written. And the survivors who survived did so because they probably had better jobs. They probably had better access to food. And because, um, you know, many millions just starved to death. Just starved. But they didn't write about it. And there's, and there's still that persistent survivor's guilt that occurs. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I told you this, but 
my father, after he set up his medical practice, he took an interest in Holocaust survivors. And the, actually, the German government, the, cons- the, uh, the, the German ambassador, uh, worked closely with my father to get reparations, whatever they might be, from the German government. So my father was kind of the medical examiner for these Holocaust survivors to document what injuries psychological and physical had been done to them as survivors and then the german government uh, would would make uh, I, I i hesitate to use the word appropriate no uh because nothing's appropriate but th- they did get reparations even my mother who wasn't ever harmed by the nazis other than physically harmed other than that she had to leave her country uh, she received a pension from the German government uh, and an extra extra pension uh, until the day she died, uh, you know, uh, trying to make some amends for the fact that she had to leave Germany. But uh, when my father retired from practice, uh, a, num- a number of those patients stayed in our group and uh, and I assumed their care. And I don't know, Steve, if you've taken care of many Holocaust survivors, um, but I noticed I noticed that most of the time Holocaust survivors fell into two groups. Number the first group was the group that never left the con- they never have left the concentration camp. The rest of their life, they're a prisoner within themselves. They, they, they have nightmares and I'm not talking every single one, but I'm talking many have nightmares. They wake up screaming. They are depressed. They, they just are still emotionally, psychologically in the concentration camp and they will be, and they were until the day they died sometimes in their eighties and nineties. And then the other group and it was a large number of these that I saw. These were the people, men and women, that when they got out, if they survived, they said to themselves, uh, you know, I've been to hell. I have been to hell and I survived and nothing is gonna be this bad. And they never looked back and they just went on and many of these people became extremely successful. And not only did they become successful in, uh, in the United States and in England and other Israel, they went to Israel, they became very successful in the fields that they chose and they never wanted to talk about what happened. They just kind of yeah. buried that emotionally. And they said, that's past, I am moving on and uh, and that's what they did. So I kind of found these two groups, and there weren't a lot of people in between. You know, those who were very successful, but they remembered a lot, and they, you know, whenever they thought about it, it uh, made them cry. And and they, I just didn't see that very often. I'm sure, I'm sure there are people like that, but I I didn't see it as much. And I wondered if you've had any experience with that group too. You know, I didn't treat many. I didn't see any as a physician or as a surgeon. I know my mother had a close friend who was relatively successful, and she, you know, she would you'd always see that tattoo on her forearm with her numbers. Mm-hmm. But she didn't she didn't talk about the camps, and I think that's that's the issue is that uh, maybe, as you say, you you survived, you've done, you've gone through hell. And uh, let's move on. And I don't want to tell the world anything more. Um, and there is that, you know, as I think I even mentioned in the book, you know, even though physically you might be released from the camp, you're still psychologically, you're psychologically uh, a prisoner to your past. And I think that's what's happened. You know, I... Uh, I don't know. The more, the more I, you know, this book was written, and 
talk about it and I meet with people, I teach it, I, I go to the schools and I've taught at the schools and um, I don't get tired of talking about it. I, I, I think it's, because even talking to people like you bring out new thoughts and new feelings and information. And I think the world should not, we should continue to talk it through, talk about it, because there is the basis in any population of people, a group of people that want to blame their lack of success in life on a specific other group. And that, you know, whether they be the Jews or whether they be the Tutsis or the in Serbia, you know, the Muslims there, whatever they were, there's always somebody's going to try to find some group that they can identify their own failure in life because of them. Yeah, the scapegoat. A scapegoat for my lack of success. And of course, the Jews throughout history, the Jews throughout history have always been the scapegoat. Uh, I mean, you know, that's not an opinion. That's a that's a fact. And but you know, Steve, it was very interesting in your book. I, as I recall, Hans Block, who uh, was just out to save his own life, he was the physician that also did these horrible experiments, and he then became uh, uh, what was his name, ha- uh, Hauptmann. Uh, to escape or tried to do that. Uh, but as he was kind of going through the process and thinking about it, he, he assumed, he said, I know what's going to happen. All the people in the world are going to blame us Germans for what we tried to do to save the country. We're going to become the scapegoats. So in a very twisted, you know, uh, sick way, he kind of assumed, you know, that I, we were, we Germans are now going to become the scapegoat of the world, and now we're all going to be punished for what we just tried to do to save our country. So uh, it, it's, it's just, it was again another little twist that you so well developed in the in the story that uh, the Jews recognize that throughout history they've always been the scapegoats. And they were always blamed for whatever happened in any country uh, because people need scapegoats, as you said, to assuage their inability to become successful or, or, uh, or, uh, or to become successful or the problems that develop. And now these Germans were, these SS officers were saying the same thing. And in the Nuremberg trials, they were defending themselves on that basis. I didn't know anything, and this is what I tried to do. And uh, That is so true. They, they, they've always said, I never knew what was happening. You know, when you go to Germany and you visit Dachau, the concentration camp, is less than a mile from the center of the city of Dachau. Right. And the, right. the chimneys that go up and pour the smoke over the area cannot just blow in one direction. They blow in all directions over the city. And the people would say, we never knew what was happening. Not and to mention that all the Jews in their towns were disappearing, you know, and going somewhere, and no one asked what and why, and, you know, the question, yeah. No, it's beyond belief. It's just beyond belief. But, you know, Steve, I I ask, you know, but, you know, we're all guilty uh, in a a way. I mean, I ask myself, what was I doing when the Rwanda massacre occurred? Did I speak up? Did I, you know, did I criticize this government for not doing anything? I mean, and and this is in an age where we knew what was happening because of all the modern techniques of, you know, presenting news. So we knew what was happening. Even even back in World War II, and we had a few of the prisoners had escaped from Auschwitz. And they came right. out and they told the people that they were what they were doing, and we had the option to bomb the rail lines leading to Auschwitz. Right. And our Air Force, or our commanders, or our commander in chief, chose not to do that. 
That's and correct. At that time, at that time, they were just uh, trainloads of Hungarians were being dumped in Auschwitz to be murdered. It was, right. I don't know. You know, it's. Uh, or even bombing the crematorium, bombing the crematoriums. I mean, knowing that there would be, of course, innocents that would die, but they were dying anyway, and they knew that. They knew that. Well, you know, in the end, the Germans destroyed the crematorium anyway, thinking that they could hide what they did from the world. They, they, right. <laughs> this crazy thing was, oh, they'll never find out what we did. So. I must say, uh, General Eisenhower, uh, he was a you know, he was remarkable in, in making sure that the uh, evidence was preserved, you know, that it wasn't going to be whitewashed. Right. Right. So I was there in the world. Just There's just, just a few crazy people out there who are the Holocaust deniers, but there are crazy people who believe lots of other things, too. But I think that, well, but again, I, I think that we all have to ask ourselves the question, what, what am I doing now with all the, you know, with the horrors in the world? Sure, it may not be, you know, uh, crematoriums and and mass murders, but there, there have been mass murders in our lifetime. And, you know, what did we as individuals do? And uh, I must say I had, I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough, and uh, I uh, I think about that often, uh, and it bothers me. And I hope that, yeah. you know, I hope that I will speak up with the next one and the next one uh, more than I have, and in any way that I can try to do it. Obviously, I couldn't individually stop what happened in Rwanda or Cambodia or other places uh, of which people were just slaughtered. But, uh, you know, you can speak up as an American citizen and say, this is not right and we should be doing something and and we should speak you up. Should, you know, you should be able to go to your congressional representative and say, do something about this in the Congress. Speak up yourself. Right. You know? Well, we yeah. could probably talk forever. I've got other thoughts about the French involvement in World War II and the Holocaust and lots of other things that we could go on. So, well, again, I Steve, I just want to—I just want to tell you, uh, uh, I am—I uh, I was just so impressed uh, with your story uh, that you wrote. Uh, and I have recommended your book and given your book to uh, many friends, and they have too. They said, what a great uh, uh, chronicle of this time was, uh, and historical fiction at its best. I thank you so much, John. I appreciate your time and your friendship, and uh, when we get out of this cold, icy Indiana, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to meet up with you and Diane, plan to do that. Absolutely. We look forward to it. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bye -bye, Steve. Bye-bye.